Ours is a world obsessed by its borders, a global age re-erecting barriers against itself, against the movement of goods, of people. Some governments are even busy blocking the free movement of music, or at least of musicians. But songs themselves are no respecters of borders. Carried by people and print, born by the air or in the mind, they move and settle and move again. Songs can beguile new listeners with their air of the unfamiliar or the foreign, and they can just as easily cut their cloth to their new company, fitting in as if they've always been there. I'm Oscar Cox Jensen, and in this programme, I'm telling the story of five songs that have travelled in and out of Ireland, across Europe and around the world. We're going to begin with a well-known songwriter and a well-known song. Thomas More was a hugely successful writer in his day, something of a Regency darling, but controversial for both his politics and his morals. He was also extremely well-travelled. 200 years on, he's probably most famous for his collection of Irish and other national melodies, like The Minstrel Boy, or Oft in the Stilly Night, or this one, The Last Rose of Summer. Last Rose of Summer, performed there by Anne Murray and Graham Johnson in the original arrangement by John Stevenson. And joining me to talk about the song is Sarah McLeave, Senior Lecturer in Musicology and Composition at Queen's University Belfast. Sarah, Thomas More's songs were tremendously popular in the early 19th century. What is it about these songs, do you think, that so captivated people at the time? Well, there were two broad reasons. One is that there was a lot of interest at the time in articulations of different national cultures through song. And the Irish melodies are the most famous example of that in the 19th century and the most successful. And the other was Moore's sheer craft at making an immediate impression, an immediate emotional impression in the way that he wrote these lyrics. And we can see that in this song in particular in the way that he stresses certain words. Each verse will have four phrases or sentences in it, and three of those will be set in the music to end quite strongly. And the words he uses for the last rose and the first and the third verse are particularly telling. Alone, gone, sigh. Decay, away, and alone. This makes Last Rose of Summer sound... Um quite a tragic, poignant song. Is that how you would read it? Yes, it can be read in many different ways. I mean, on the surface, it's a song about a flower, a pretty song for a Regency lady to play at the piano, but it's about companionship 
and loss of companionship. And it can be read that these companions could be family, they could be friends, they could be loved ones, or indeed comrades in arms. And indeed the rose was a symbol used by the United Irishmen. So these songs can have political meanings, some of them, but they're very carefully concealed. This is fascinating. So a song that may look on the face of it quite innocent or straightforward has many interpretations. We know from Moore's letters and his correspondence that he cared deeply too about the music, not only about the lyrics. He hated it when they were published or performed without the tunes. So what do we know of the original melody for this song? Well, it's a traditional Irish tune called The Groves of Blarney. And Moore collected his melodies from any number of sources. His Dublin publisher, William Power, sent him some. Uh, some of them came from manuscripts, and there were about three or four popular published collections, including Edward Bunting and, and Edward Light, that he took many tunes from. Where do you think he came across the Groves of Blarney then? From one of these collections? Yes, it would be. I believe this is one of the Bunting tunes. And how he worked is kind of interesting because he would take these tunes and we would know, again, from his correspondence that he would walk in the garden or walk across Lord Mora's estate and that would help him forge the lyrics to match the tune. So he's reading the melody in a book, but then he's just humming it to himself, going around in the outside air. You can see why that becomes a song about a rose, I suppose. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there things we should look for, though, beyond the songs themselves to account for their popularity in the 19th century? I believe Moore worked very closely with his publishers, didn't he? Yes, he did, and that involved uh, acts of promotion. They paid for him to join different gentlemen's clubs in London where he would sing these, and any opportunity to sing more would cheerfully take up. He was born to perform, although not a great singer, he was a very engaging performer, we know from accounts. This sounds like a very modern process almost. There's a sort of whole vision going on here to promote the music. Yeah, and it's promoted further by people taking it up and making arrangements of it for pianoforte. In the first century, uh, there were over 200 different arrangements of this melody. Still, there's a sense that a song only becomes really successful if it totally outgrows the writer and is taken up by others. These arrangements, I imagine, they went further. Uh, there's a German composer, isn't there, Friedrich von Flotow, that had a hand in extending this fame. He composed a comic opera, Martha, that was performed in Berlin in 1847, and The Last Rose featured in there, and that seems to particularly, according to Axel Klein's research, extended the life of this song considerably. That was Die Letzte Rose from Act Two of von Flotow's opera Martha, with soprano Anna Berger and the Berlin Staatskapelle Orchestra, conducted by Johannes Schuler. So we've got the 19th century there, Sarah. But over a hundred years later, the song reaches new audiences once again when it gets performed by Nana Moscori, the phenomenal Greek star who seems to have done more, I think, than almost any other singer in popularizing songs all over the world. What's interesting about the Muscori is this is at a time when Moore himself was not at all popular. Post-World War I, 
tastes had changed quite profoundly and he just was out of fashion. But this song suited Muscardi and her voice and she recorded it in English and in French in quite different arrangements. Was it a straight up translation or did she alter the song in any way for a French audience? Well, it's to a new set of lyrics and it very much focuses on the rose. It's if you pick a rose and the consequences to the rose and it, it's, it's a very sentimental version. Less layered perhaps than Moore's original. That was Nana Muscuri performing La Dernière Rose de l'Été. Sarah McLeave will be back later in the programme. But joining me now is Brianna Robertson-Kirkland, lecturer in historical musicology at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. We turn to a song with, if anything, an even longer, wider and more mysterious history than that we've just heard, Robin Adair. Brianna, forgive me if this is a stupid question to ask, but the tune of Robin Adair, Irish or Scottish? That is a very complicated question. Previously, when I was younger, I've sung this song several times and I only ever knew it as a Scottish tune, but that is not the case. So we have a disputed origin story. We do have a disputed origin story. Uh, so there's actually two titles that this tune is known by. There's Eileen Arun, which is the Irish title, and there's Robin Adair, which is the Scottish title, although there's a bit of mixing and matching there as well. But actually the first printed reference to this song is found in Charles Coffey's The Beggar's Opera from 1729, where it's known as Eleanorun, but that's like an English opera. So first printed origins, English opera, also found in Scottish manuscripts from the 1720s to the 1740s as Robin Adair. And there's a lot of interesting background stories about it being collected in Ireland as well. It sounds like when people were trying to claim it as Scottish or Irish, there were some stories they were drawing on here. So there was one anecdote that was printed in all of the periodicals in Ireland, Scotland and in England that said it had been written by poet and harpist Carol Daly. And then Edward Bunting, he said that he had collected a version from the Irish harper Dennis Hebson and claimed that this variation was by Cornelius Lyons. So exactly where it has come from it's unclear, but it's nice to see that there's lots of different big names who are being associated with it. Robin Adair is a very specific sounding title. Is that a person? Where does that come from? Well, there is an anecdote that it was apparently the title Robin Adair or the lyrics Robin Adair was written by Lady Caroline Keppel and that she had written it about her son, Robert Adair, who was named after his father, who was a surgeon, also called Robert Adair. But that story dates from around about the 1750s, and we're already seeing Robin Adair, that title, appearing in Scottish manuscripts from 20 years earlier. So I'm a bit 
sceptical about that story. But perhaps, Brianna, in, in general then, it's more interesting to think about why people wanted to claim that the song was Scottish or Irish rather than trying to work out which came first. The mysterious origin story definitely ties into the romanticism of the day. So claiming it as Scottish, Irish, English kind of means that it's crossing all borders and can be claimed by anybody in these nations. We're going to hear you perform two versions of the song. The first, going back to the Scottish side, has a connection with Robert Burns, is that right? That's correct. So Robert Burns, he actually penned three different lyrics for this particular tune. And his reasoning was because he kept trying to write lyrics to this tune and he wasn't satisfied with what he was writing. He actually wrote to his collaborator, George Thompson, I've tried my hand on Robert Adair and you will probably think with little success, but it's such a cursed, cramped, out of the way measure that I despair of doing anything better to it. So that's Robert Burns' opinion of what he wrote uh, in terms of lyrics. One of those versions was particularly popular, and that was Had I a Cave, which is what I'm going to be performing for you. Robert Burns' setting of Robin Adair, sung there by Brianna Robertson-Kirkland with Brian Connor on piano. Burns is very economical with that song, isn't he? But there's another big name in the mix who maybe takes a slightly different approach? Yes, the big name in the mix is Ludwig van Beethoven, who he uh, penned another version, arrangement of Robin Adair, much longer. And uh, he actually doesn't use Robert Burns' text at all. He sets the text, since all thy vows false made, and um, which was often performed to the tune Cromlet's Lilt. And um, Cromlet's Lilt, that was another very popular tune. It's found in Alan Ramsey's Tea Table Miscellany, volume two from 1726, and the Orpheus Caledonius from 1733, and the Scots Musical Museum. But for some reason, Beethoven wanted to set these particular lyrics to this tune. 
and it was all translated into German. So we get another lovely setting. And when he's got his hands on it, what does Beethoven do with this? He makes it a much more luxurious version, I suppose is the, the way to describe it ponders a lot more musically over this version. So we're getting a lot more interludes and a lot more back and forth between the singer and the piano than that previous version that we just heard. That was Brianna Robertson-Kirkland, accompanied on piano by Brian Connor, with a setting by Beethoven of Robin Adair, one of the Volksleader from his 12 songs of various nationalities. Brianna, 
Burns, Beethoven, Irish, Scottish. It seems people are really invested in claiming and working with this song. What is it, you think, that made it so successful and made it appeal to people in so many places? The song itself, there's not actually much to it. It's, it's very simple, it's very stepwise, it's very short. So you can almost adapt it to suit a variety of lyric. And even though Robert Burns said that he had difficulty setting it, there are clearly others who have not had as many difficulties or found lyrics that fit to it. So probably the simplicity is why it's so easily travelled. And travelled it certainly has. Robin Adair's story does not end in the Western classical tradition. In the 1880s, Bengali composer Rabindranath Tagore rearranged the melody again for his song Sakali Furalo Swaponapre. That was Manisha Muraliner and Manoj Muraliner with Sokoli Furalo. Let's move on now to the most recent of the five songs that we're exploring in this program, Green Fields of France. I think this version might be the most familiar. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside and rest for a while? Need the warm summer sun I've been walking all day And I'm nearly done I see by your gravestone You are only 19 When you joined the great fallen In 1916 I hope you died well And I hope you died clean our young Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? The Green Fields of France, performed there by the Furies and Davy Arthur. Joining me to talk about the song is David Robb, Senior Lecturer in Musicology and Composition at Queen's University, Belfast. David, if that was the first time anyone had heard Green Fields of France, which tells the tale of fallen soldier Willie McBride, I think they'd be forgiven for assuming it's an Irish song? Yes, they would be. Yeah, they would be, certainly. It was written by a Scotsman, actually, Eric Bogle, who was Scottish and he'd been born in Peebles, uh, but he went out to live in Australia in the 60s and was part of the folk movement of that time. So a Scottish slash Australian song, in a that's, way. That's right, yeah. The story it tells is rooted in the First World War, though, isn't it? It is very much so. It's, um, it's based on this uh, fictitious uh, story of a soldier called Willie McBride in a cemetery in France. And the author is basically at the graveside asking questions to William McBride, asking him what, what the experience was of his death. So there was no real William McBride? No, uh, he's actually a fictitious figure, even though they actually found some William McBrides in the cemeteries in France. Eric Bogle invented this, uh, this character. And his song then wasn't The Green Fields of France, it had a different title. That's right, it was called No Man's Land at first, and the Furies took it over and called it The Green Fields of France, yeah. Let's hear the original song, No Man's Land, then, as sung by the writer himself, Eric Bogle. Well, how 
to do Private William McBride Do you mind if I sit here Down by your grey side And I'll rest for a while In the warm summer sun I've been walking all day Lord and I'm nearly done I see by your gravestone You were only nineteen When you joined the glorious fallen In 1916 Well I hope you died quick And I hope you died clean Or Willie Eric Bogle there with his song No Man's Land from the 2005 compilation Singing the Spirit Home. So it's a Scottish Australian with hints of Irish song about World War I, but its lyrics are in a way really about rejecting those divides of nation, of borders and conflict. I can easily imagine it travelling further then. Is that the case? Yes, it was a very big hit in Ireland at the time. In 1979, it was number one hit in the charts uh, for the Furies. And there was a very close connection between the Irish and the German um, folk scenes at that time. Uh, lots of Irish musicians playing in Germany, lots of Germans coming to Ireland to uh, witness the Irish folk scene. And the song was uh, picked up by uh, Hannes Vader, a very well-known German singer-songwriter. He took the song and made an adaptation of that. It's a loose translation of the song, and it became a quite a big hit in the German movement of the time. Auf deinem Kreuz finde ich tote Soldat, deinen Namen nicht nur ziffern und jemand hat. Die Zahl 1916 gemalt und du warst nicht einmal 19 Jahre alt. Hannes Vader's Es ist an der Zeit in a live recording from 1982. David, we can hear there that Vader is keeping Bogle's melody and the reference to 1916, but it's not the same title and it's not at all the same lyric. So what does Vader change in rewriting the song for this new audience? Well, Vader comes very much out of the German student movement of the late 60s and very much part of the oppositional movement. Uh, the folk scene of the time was characterised by that. And Vader himself was a communist and... Uh, was very involved in the peace movement of the time. And the song is called Es ist an der Zeit in German, which means now it's time, it's time now. And it's very much this, this idea that we must fight against uh, the threat of nuclear war at the time in Germany. So it's got a subtle difference in terms of the emphasis in Germany than in Ireland and Scotland. You know, it's much more geared towards the peace movement and the actual current peace movement. So we find different um, tendencies in the song. Uh, the author, Hannes Vader, he actually, actually intervenes in the song and gives his personal opinion more than Eric Bogle does in the Scottish version. And he actually, at some points in the song, the song becomes almost a manifesto for the German peace movement. So it's a lot less detached in a way. He's, the writer's really putting himself in there. But they're taking out William McBride, I believe. Yes, it's a nameless soldier in the German version. I think what, what Hannes Vader is trying to do is he's, he's trying to get away from any sentimentalizing. He wants it to be a very kind of objective account of the death of this soldier. So he takes away the name. He also has more, it's a more graphic depiction of the horrors of war than the Eric Bogle version was as well. So really in crossing seas there, it's, it's becoming more graphic, less elegiac, more 
more somber, but also more relevant in a way the further away it gets in time from the subject it's discussing. Does it take on any renewed relevance after that, after the 1980s? Yes, well, it, it's a peace song which, uh, which Hannes Waller continues to sing throughout uh, his career right up until the 21st century. And the song was played at an anti anti-Iraq war demonstration in Berlin before the Brandenburg Gate in front of hundreds of thousands of people in 2003. Even the Eric Bogle version as well has continued to be sung today. You know, it's a peace song and it's universal, it's international. And the theme of the song is really about deception, you know, how we are being deceived and how politicians continue to deceive us today. And that was very relevant for the Iraq war at that time. I can see the song becoming really powerful as a protest in live performance then. Having said which, I see you've come equipped with your bazooki. Yes. Would you give us a rendition of the song? Certainly. Weit in der Champagne im Mitsommergrün Dort wo zwischen Grabkreuz und Mondblumen blühen Da flüstern die Gräser und wiegen sich leicht Im Wind, der sanft über das Gräberfeld streicht Auf deinem Kreuz finde ich toter Soldat, deinen Namen nicht nur ziffern und jemand hat. Die Zahl 1916 gemalt und du warst nicht einmal 19 Jahre alt. Ja, auch dich haben sie schon genauso belogen, so wie sie es mit uns heute immer noch tun und du hast ihnen alles gegeben deine Kraft, deine Jugend, dein Leben Hast du toter Soldat mal ein Mädchen geliebt? Sicher nicht, denn nur dort, wo es Frieden gibt können Zärtlichkeit und Vertrauen gedeihen, was so dat, um zu sterben, nicht um jung zu sein. Vielleicht dachtest du dir, ich falle schon bald, nehme mir mein Vergnügen, wie es kommt mit Gewalt. Dazu warst du entschlossen, hast dich aber dann vor dir selber geschämt und es doch nie getan. Ja, auch dich haben sie schon genauso belogen, so wie sie es mit uns heute immer noch tun. Und du hast ihnen alles gegeben, deine Kraft, deine Jugend, dein Leben. So dat gingst du gläubig und gern in den Tod, oder hast du verzweifelt, Verbittert, verrot, deinen wirklichen Feind nicht erkannt bis zum Schluss. Ich hoffe, es traf dich ein sauberer Schuss. Oder hat ein Geschoss dir die Glieder zerfetzt? Hast du nach deiner Mutter geschrien bis zuletzt? Bist du auf deinen Beinstümpchen weiter gerannt und ein Grab? Wirkt es mehr als ein Bein einer Hand. Ja, auch dich haben sie schon genauso belogen, so wie sie es mit uns heute immer noch tun. 
Und du hast ihnen alles gegeben, deine Kraft, deine Jugend, dein Leben. Es blieb nur das Kreuz als die einzige Spur von deinem Leben, doch hör meinen Schwur, für den Frieden zu kämpfen und wachsam zu sein, fährt die Menschheit noch einmal auf Lügen herein. Dann kann es geschehen, dass bald niemand mehr lebt, niemand, der die Milliarden von Toten begräbt. Doch längst finden sich mehr und mehr Menschen bereit, diesen Krieg zu verhindern, es ist an der Zeit. Ja, auch dich haben sie schon genauso belogen, so wie sie es mit uns heute immer noch tun. Und du hast ihnen alles gegeben, deine Kraft, deine Jugend, dein Leben. Ja, auch dich haben sie schon genauso belogen, so wie sie es mit uns heute immer noch tun. Und du hast ihnen alles gegeben, deine Kraft, deine Jugend, dein Leben. Ja, auch dich haben sie schon genauso belogen, so wie sie es mit uns heute immer noch tun. Und du hast ihnen alles gegeben, deine Kraft, deine Jugend, dein Leben. That was David Robb with Es ist an der Zeit, a German reworking of Greenfields of France. For our next song, we're returning to Thomas More, but to a song that is much less well known today than Last Rose of Summer, which we heard earlier. I'm joined now by musicologist Trina Rohanlan, an expert on Moore's songs. Trina, Thomas More included the song Those Evening Bells in his National Airs in 1818, but in this case, national doesn't just mean Irish, does it? Moore's National Airs song collection could be best described as a sister collection to the Irish melodies. So for the National Airs, Moore basically used, used the same approach, uh, the same creative process and worked with the same collaborators. However, um, for the National Airs, Moore sourced the tunes from a range of European countries and regions. What do we know about the origins of the tune itself? Moore identifies the tune in the collection as the, the Bells of St. Petersburg. Now, this presumably led audiences to believe that this tune originated in, in Russia. However, again, the, the story is a little bit more complicated. The tune has been attributed to Beethoven. It has also been attributed to the French dramatist who was working under the pen name Mélisville. And we know that Moore was in residence in Paris during the period 1819 to 1822. And we also know from Moore's letters and journals 
that he frequently attended the Parisian theatres. So it is quite likely that he heard the tune in this context or at the very least while on his travels. Well, at least we know that Moore himself definitely wrote the lyrics. Uh, What was in his mind, do you think, when setting words to this tune? An account published in The Atlas has suggested that Moore was inspired by hearing the Ashbourne Peel. Now, this does uh, seem quite plausible because uh, Moore lived at Mayfield Cottage, located near the market town of Ashbourne in Derbyshire between 1813 and 1817. So really during that period in which he, he would have been preparing the, the national airs. So it, it, seems, it seems quite plausible. Let's hear this version of the song now performed for us by Brianna Robertson-Kirkland, accompanied on piano by Brian Connor. This is the 1818 arrangement by John Stevenson, with lyrics by Thomas Moore. Those Evening Bells, performed there by Brianna Robertson-Kirkland and Brian Connor. Trina, can you give us an idea of how this song's popularity spread in the English-speaking world in the 19th century? Subsequent to its publication in the National Airs collection, it was also published as a single or a single sheet song, first of all uh, in London by Power, but later some of the dominant publishing houses in London picked up on the song and also published it as a single sheet song. And by the 1820s, the song then travels to America. It's published in Philadelphia. And by the late 1820s, it is published by Riley in New York. 
Moore's still quite a big name at this time, of course. Uh, is the song's fame limited there to Anglophone countries where people know who he is? No, absolutely not. Moore's, Moore's works were translated in, into a number of languages. In fact, Moore's lyrics were a source of inspiration for many other creative artists and led to the publication of numerous imitations, numerous song imitations and poetic imitations as well. And this type of response is particularly evident in France, in 19th century France. In fact, by the 1820s, Paris was a centre for the dissemination of, of Moore's lyrics. His popularity there was enhanced, no doubt, by the fact that he lived in Paris for a period of time. And then by the 1830s, um, we see that those evening bells becomes established in the French song repertoire. And by this time, it's known as Les Cloches du Soir and is set to the French text written by Marceline Desbordes-Valmore. And a range of composers picked up on this text and, and set the text to music. Perhaps uh, the best known setting set to Desbordes-Valmore's text is that by César Franck. Les Cloches du Soir, a French interpretation of Those Evening Bells by César Franck, performed there by Gabriella Lete-Kiss and Adrienne Hauser. There's an irony here, isn't there, Trina, that a song all about nostalgia, about home, has travelled so far in space and time. What is it, do you think, that appeals so widely across all these borders? I really think and I really believe it's the lyrics which resonate with audiences. Audiences can really relate to the imagery uh, and the sentiment conveyed in the narrative. And that really is the thing that, uh, that seems to, to stand the test of time and speak to all cultures. Those evening bells endured right into the 20th century, in fact, crossing the Atlantic Ocean and ending up being absorbed into the American songbook. This is an arrangement by Charles Ives, performed here by Paul Sperry and Irma Vallecillo. Thomas More's Those Evening Bells there, in an arrangement by Charles Ives. From the American Songbook, 
we go back again, across seas and centuries, to the age of Napoleon. Bonnie Light Horseman is all about crossing borders, not only in its history, but in its lyrics. It's the story of a lamenting widow whose soldier sweetheart has been killed abroad. She imagines herself transformed into a bird so she can cross the seas to his grave. But more than that, she declares that she'll dress as a man and sign up herself to follow in her lover's footsteps over the ocean. You find this imagery in a lot of ballads of the time. But Bonnie Light Horseman is pretty specific. Most versions include a reference to Boney, meaning Napoleon Bonaparte, and Lotz mentions Spain, suggesting that it's a song of the Peninsular War from 1807 to 1814. I first came across Bonnie Light Horseman when I was eight years old. It was on the first CD I ever bought, which was, rather embarrassingly, released to accompany the television adaptations of Bernard Cornwell's Sharp novels. The song was adapted and performed by English songwriter Kate Rusby. When That was Kate Rusby with her retitled song, Broken Hearted I Will Wander, from Over the Hills and Far Away, the music of Sharp. Rusby makes the song musically her own. Most other recordings have stuck to the melody sung by Mary Ann Carolan of County Louth. Coming from a family of traditional singers, Carolan recorded her version in 1978 for the Topic Records album, Songs from the Irish Tradition. And the kill my young horseman returning from Spain, broken hearted I wander. Hearted I wander. So Bonnie Light Horseman has long been associated with Ireland. This is maybe the best known version that follows Catalan's tune, recorded by Planksty. Planksty there. I'd always thought this was the tune of Bonnie Light Horseman, but a chance discovery in the British Library has made me think twice. It's a piece of American sheet music from 1860, published in London, but decorated with US flags and bald eagles. The lyrics make clear that it's the right song, but it's advertised as being arranged, not composed, by Franz Nava, the pseudonym of English music historian Edward Rimbolt, and as being sung by the Campbell Minstrels. So we have this odd hybrid, a black-faced minstrel arrangement with four-part harmony chorus 
but of a much older song, and its tune is completely different to 20th century versions. This is a song that's crossed the Atlantic at least twice, but its origins are still obscure. Song scholar Rowley Brown has compared early editions from England and Ireland, and even challenged the association with Napoleon, but we've never had a printed text definitely dated before 1819. But Sarah McLeave, who rejoins me now, has got some news. Sarah, what have you found? Well, headline discovery that the earliest known version of Bonnie Light Horseman is actually Irish. As you know, we wanted to include a Napoleonic song in this program because we knew it would travel well and far, and I was looking into the Irish dimension, so I consulted John Molden, who's a specialist in Irish ballads, and he revealed that the earliest known copy of Bonnie Light Horseman was actually published in Belfast, and Linen Hall Library in Belfast had a copy of it. And it has, quite unusually for this repertory, the date blazoned on the title page of 1807. It's really great to get our hands on this copy of the pamphlet. It's an amazing little thing. Bonnie Light Horseman is wrapped up with a set of other songs, all seemingly designed to persuade the Irish to fight in the war against the French. But then there's this anti-war song in the middle of it that comes sort of out of nowhere. I think I'm going to try an experiment here, combining this earliest known version of the lyrics from the 1807 Belfast pamphlet with the earliest known version of the tune, the 1860 Blackface Minstrel score. Let's see if it works. You who wives, maids, and widows, I pray give attention Unto these few lines I am now going to mention Of a maiden distraction that's now going to wander She relies upon George for the loss of her lover Broken-hearted I'll wander For the loss of my lover My bonny light horseman Was slain in the war Had I the wings of an eagle To fly in the air I would cross the salt seas Where my true love does lie and with my fond wings I would beat on his grave And kiss his cold lips that are pale in the clay My broken hearted I'll wander For the loss of my lover My bonny light horseman Was slain in the war When Bonnie commanded his men for to stand, he placed his cannon out over the land. He fixed his cannon the victory to gain, and they have slain my handsome light horseman in his way coming aim. A broken hearted I'll wander For the loss of my lover My bonny light horseman Was slain in the war 
That was my attempt to combine the earliest known versions of the tune and lyrics of Bonnie Light Horseman. There's so much we'll never know about these songs, but we're still making new discoveries. Even better, people are still making new versions. These songs, like so many more, are still on their journeys. Sarah, I think here we have a collection of songs that show that time is no barrier, the sea is no barrier, they're going to keep travelling. Indeed, because the songs are with the people, and as people travel, they take their music with them and pass it from generation to generation. Do you think there's anything that unites these five songs in particular when it comes to this going beyond borders? Well, there's some immediacy to them, an appeal either of an emotion or a story that grabs people that has a universality about it. I certainly found that when singing my song, and I think all of our performers and experts have really found that connection between the performance and the study. Um, there's sort of something ironic here that we're taking all of these songs that have cropped up in national traditions or other product of times of nationalism, and we're speaking in a time of nationalism ourselves. Um, do you think there's anything these songs can offer us now today that can really help us deal with the place we find ourselves? Well, I think it reminds us what's common about us in our humanity, which is emotions and stories, and it's the connections that matter, not the divisions. As long as people are going to find something new to sing in these songs, there's some hope. Yes, there's hope. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks, too, to my earlier guests, David Robb and Trina Rohanlon, and to Brianna Robertson-Kirkland and pianist Brian Connor. There's nothing more portable than a song. And in the era of online streaming, it's easy to hear songs as global, but before the age of recording, this was just as true, except that rather than hearing the exact same copy of a song all over the world, songs grew as they traveled, picking up new accents and new ideas. This was true back in the medieval Mediterranean when the music of the Arab world mingled with that of the French troubadours. And it was just as true in the age of sail, empire, and slavery, the age of nation building and the putting up of borders, but also an age when travel and technology could send the sound of love and sorrow right around the world. Our songs are still travelling. In 2019, the American singer Anais Mitchell joined up with Josh Kaufman and Eric Johnson to form a sort of folk supergroup. Their name? The same as their lead single and debut album, Bonnie Light Horseman. So let's play out on a song that, after more than 200 years, is still going beyond borders. Here's Bonnie Light Horseman by Bonnie Light Horseman. You're the cause of my woe Sends my body light or smoke In the war he did go Broken hearted I won't go Broken hearted I remain Sends my body light or smoke In the war he was slain And if I was some small bird and if I had wings to fly, I would fly over the ocean where my own true love does lie. I would fly. 